If you have your Bibles, open up to Hebrews chapter 10. The book of Hebrews chapter 10. It's near the back. Start in the book of Revelation and turn to the left. That might be an easier way. I'm glad to be here. I'm even more glad to be preaching only two times today. So that's an exciting thing for me and for us. Uh, it started getting a little tiring. My throat was a little sore. So uh, I'm excited to have that, but also to have us a little closer to what is more or has been familiar in the past. We'll call it maybe normal. Well, we're more than halfway through our 10-part sermon series called Together. And as Mike said, it's really about or at least organized around our membership covenant. It's a series that is trying to teach what it means to be a part of a local church. Now, Having confessed that Jesus is Lord and believed that God has raised him from the dead, the church is comprised of those that Jesus has called out or rescued from the world. The Bible never describes Christians as isolated individuals, but always as a collective body with many members, a household, a flock, a vine even a temple. In other words, when we are saved, if you will, we are not only saved to Jesus, but we are saved, in a sense, to one another. So simply stated, a local church is a group of Christians who confess belief in the gospel, and they covenant together to live as the people of God in a particular place. And so the series is designed around teaching what these commitments are that are contained in this covenant with one another. And so this morning our focus is on one particular promise of our covenant, and it is this, that we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together or neglect to pray for ourselves and others. So this is in our membership covenant, it is the covenant that our members sign, it is the covenant that we read and recite at our members' meetings. You can think of it like marriage vows. We don't often revisit our marriage vows, but we try to revisit the covenant we make with one another, and this is one part of it. So the question is begged, why do we gather every week? Why do we gather as a church? A popular Christian motto is, don't go to church, be the church. You've probably heard that before. And while the sentiment of the statement is very well intended, it can lead to a very unhealthy viewpoint, one that pits being and going against one another. Perhaps it goes without saying that many Christians already struggle with the idea of church attendance. Prior to COVID-19, for actually more than two decades statistically, national church attendance has been declining significantly. In March 2020, when the pandemic forced most churches online, researchers identified a few types of churchgoers in this unique kind of digital church age. There were those Christians who streamed their COVID-19, if you will, church online, there were Christians that were streaming a different church online. And then there were Christians who stopped 
attending by not streaming anything at all. And while there are some people who maybe began to attend church online for the first time, that number's significantly small. For all the blessing that our digital age has provided, and there's a tremendous amount of blessing, there's a subtle trap lurking in this cyber world, even before COVID came around. There's an increasing temptation to allow online sermons to replace one's commitment to hearing God's Word preached in person alongside fellow covenant members at the place and time where their local church gathers. Now, listening to sermons online is generally a good thing. But when it takes the place of gathering with God's people to hear the Word of God in person from the appointed shepherds of your soul, Much of what God intended for the growth as Christians following Jesus gets a bit lost. And while a virtual church or a podcast pastor is a practical reality, we must consider whether it is a theological one. In other words, if we understand the church to be what the Bible says that it is, then it's possible that virtual church is something akin to wet fire. Like, by nature, it just can't be, at least long term. So why it is important? Why is it so important to gather in real life, in person? Well, one place that we are going to seek to find that answer is in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. And this is where we'll spend our time this morning. Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to good to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So why do we gather as a church? So I'm just going to focus on three different things. The first reason I believe we gather is that we are supposed to identify together. To identify together. What does that mean? Well, the book of Hebrews, if you read the whole thing, you'll see that it's a a book of theology, really, that focuses largely on Jesus and how he is the greater priest and the greater sacrifice representing a new and greater covenant than the old. It's really a book that helps you understand the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. So chapter 10, where we are, 
begins by describing this law, the Mosaic law, the law of God, as a shadow of things to come. The author continues by comparing the temporary sacrifices of Israel on the Day of Atonement that are annually done with the perfect atoning offering done once by Jesus Christ. Connected with this sacrificial worship by Israel at the temple was the forgiveness of sins. It's why they did it. To maintain their relationship as an unholy people with a holy God. We are told, though, in Hebrews chapter 10, that now, through the blood of Jesus, we now enter into the presence of God in a new and living way. Something has changed. Something has become new. So as the author speaks in Hebrews about drawing near to God without fear and with full assurance of faith, it's important to notice some of the pronouns that are used, particularly the plural pronouns. If you read the text that we read this morning, 19 to 25, you realize that it frequently talks about we and us and our. There's a collective experience, a shared experience, a communal experience that is being discussed. It is a people being discussed in the context of faith. The tabernacle or the temple, as we well know, was central to the Hebrews' experience in worship. The Jew identified not only as a worshiper, but a part of a worshiping people, part of their identity, a key aspect of their identity was rooted in assembling together as the people of God in a particular place to worship in God's presence. And so as we fast forward into the New Testament, we learn this word church. This Greek word church, the word is ekklesia. And the literal translation of this word is really the called out assembly. So, not that you really care, but etymologically speaking, that's a big word, as you get to the, where the word comes from, the word church means the house of the Lord. The modern word church is really a descendant of an old English word that refers to the body of Christian believers or place where they gathered. That's what it meant. So suffice to say, the word itself speaks of an assembly, speaks of a gathering of people. We gather in many ways to be who we are. We gather to be a gathering so the assembly of God's people, as distinguished from the world, was part of their identity from the beginning. God's people have always had a gathering, if you will, as part of their identity. And what do I mean by that? Well, as far back as the Garden of Eden, you see that God has been present together with his people in a particular place. And while those places have changed, 
there was always been a kind of geography connected with theology. It's kind of a strange phrase to think about. But a realness, a tangible place, if you will. God planted his people in a garden, right? God's people were assembled at the base of Mount Sinai where they received the Mosaic law. Where they entered into covenant with God. God's people organized into tribes and they assembled for worship, typically around a tabernacle and then around a temple. At the close of the age, John records in the Revelation chapter 21, these words. As he sees how it all comes together, he said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So you have a people in a particular place worshiping and dwelling in the presence of God all throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. So arguably, part of what that means is that the church, the people of God, the assembly of God, the church becomes the church in its gathering. If we are truly the church, truly the called out assembly, then we must assemble with other believers physically and regularly. The people of God assemble in order to make that which is invisible, visible. We display our shared citizenship in a spiritual kingdom through a temporary real geography. If, as the Bible teaches, Christians are ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5, living as exiles, which Peter teaches us, then the church is going to function and look like an embassy in a foreign land. As Jonathan Lehman argues, churches gather because embassies of heaven must be visible, they must be audible, they must be touchable. Humans are physical creatures. Bodies matter. Space matters. Physical togetherness matters. So churches in some strange way need a patch of geography, maybe just a home and maybe a building built in the 19th century. A patch, a place where we can be together to become what we actually are. See, church is not just an activity. It is the expression of an identity. We are the assembled people of God. And so the question is begged, well, can't I identify with the church apart from the gathering? Isn't it true that Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their presence? Perhaps you've heard that said before. Perhaps you've used that before. Yes, Jesus does say in Matthew 18 that 
He is among his disciples when two or three are gathered in his name. And some Christians wrongly use this verse to sanctify every small group, every Bible study, every dinner party, or every golf group. But in context, Jesus is speaking about the assembly. He's speaking about the church. More specifically, if you read it carefully, you'll say that he, in that verse, is speaking about the authority of the church to discipline. He's speaking about the unity in its decisions. He's talking about the church's purity relative to sin. Like we have that sign down on the fireplace down there, where two or three are gathered in my name. You know, that's a passage about discipline. Redemption, in generally speaking, right, is the return of God's kingly rule. And the church is supposed to be the manifestation of, of God's authority on earth. The embassy. Christ's lordship, in some sense, sanctifies this space where we gather and uniquely, not exclusively, that does not suggest Jesus isn't anywhere else. It is to say that uniquely here, His manifold wisdom is displayed through our shared worship in His presence. Even though Jesus is everywhere, He is here in our gathering in a way that He is not anywhere else. And I say here as in the gathering of his church. And so as Mike prayed for a communion church, Jesus is there in a unique, not exclusive, in a unique way in the presence of wherever a church is gathered. Simply said, something special is happening. And I don't think we approach it that way. Expecting to enter into the presence of God. Do you know the Israelites, when they approached the temple to worship, and they saw the curtain that if they crossed, they would die, and they knew as they were entering into this experience, God was there. Do we approach it the same way? We identify together as the people of God in our gathering. The church becomes the church, if you will, in the gathering. But that's not all. We gather to identify in this place as God's people, those who are called out of the world and into his presence. We also gather, though, to edify together, which is an interesting word, but it works really well with my English sense, right? Identify, edify. The third one's going to work just as well. You'll love it. Think long and hard about alliteration. Just love it. The word edification. Maybe you've heard that word before. The word edification or the verb form edify is the idea of building up. The process of building up. The word used for edification in the New Testament, I don't know if I can even pronounce this. It's oikodoime, I think. I could be totally wrong. You just say it fast and you move on. That translates literally the building of a house. The building of a house. According to 
vines, which is a great expository dictionary of Old New Testament words. It talks about spiritual growth and development of the character of believers by teaching or by example. A spiritual progress, if you will, that's a result of patient labor. Edification, being built up, growing up. Paul speaks in his letter to the Corinthians about the role of spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. Even speaks about singing and speaking words to one another, saying, do all things for the purpose of edifying one another, to build up one another. Spirituality, even our singing and our speaking the truth of God's word was never meant just for individual experience. We learned the church last week is built up through the shared ministry of its members, not just the teaching and leadership of its pastors, but by members assuming responsibility to serve one another and to speak truth to one another and to love one another. That's how it's built up as we edify one another. So the writer of Hebrews seems to connect what I describe as this edification process with the gathering. In verses 24 and 25, he says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. What a hugely important verse, especially for times such as this. We are to consider We have to intentionally think about how can I stir up and encourage someone else. And there's an implication, right? There's something that's implied in that action or both those actions, and that is this. The idea of stirring up or encouraging seems to be predicated on some assumptions. First, the fulfillment of this kind of command to stir up one another and encourage one another seems to be dependent on our being with one another. I wish that went without saying, but in the Zoom world, internet world, we're forgetting that. We're forgetting the significance of real life relationships so much so that I think the virtual life is becoming more important than the real. Edification is a form of sanctification. That's another big T-I-O-N word. And what is that word? That is just the idea of I'm in process of being conformed to the image of the Son. I am becoming in practice what I am in position. I am perfect in position, but I am not perfect in the flesh. And so sanctification is that process of growth and maturity toward holiness and toward looking more like Jesus. And some forms of sanctification are quite individual. Praying and serving oftentimes where people, you know, may not even know you're serving. But largely, this kind of edification is communal. It requires another person. Some edification is actually quite active 
But before I talk about stirring and encouraging, let me just talk about passive edification. What does that mean? Simply by being present together edifies the church. You know how many times I had to preach to that camera? Your pastors know when you're not here. Not because we're taking attendance, but because your absence is felt. And your presence is a huge encouragement. That in and of itself, just being together. I mean, imagine setting up a party to be with Jesus and like one other person shows up. It would still be joyful, but how much more when you're present? Just you showing up has power. I can't even explain it. It is mysterious. But when I preached to a camera, it was easily felt. And for those of you who streamed on your TV at home, maybe you felt it too. Like, this just just doesn't seem fullness, satisfying. So some of edification, honestly, is just showing up. It's just being present. But there's another couple implications. The fulfillment of these commands seem to be dependent also on our actual opening up our mouth and speaking with one another. To stir up, check this out. The idea of stirring up someone another, it actually carries the meaning of provoking, even irritating someone toward love and good works. I'm going to so irritate you towards good works, right? Like, how do you even do that? I don't even know, but it, it certainly is active. It's, it's, I don't know what it means, honestly. It's such strong language, though. It has to denote some kind of active, passionate sharpening behind our engagement. It's not just, hey, don't, hey, don't. How would you ever do this? Well, I guess there's lots of ways. Let me give you one way you might stir someone up like this. If we are gathered together, we all hear the same sermon, for better or worse, right? We hear the same truth being spoken. And one way to accomplish this stirring up and encouraging is actually by calling others to apply the truth that they've heard. I heard that. Did you hear that? What are we going to do about it? I don't know. Let's do it. It's not even doing. Sometimes it's just believing. Don't rob someone of sanctification by remaining silent. That makes sense? Don't rob someone of sanctification by not stirring up, by not encouraging. Don't rob them the opportunity to become more like Jesus. We can rob each other through silence. And we are to instead lovingly challenge one another to do things like hold fast to your confession. And at other times, we're not to just admonish one another, though that is certainly necessary and needed at times. We're to give a strong encouragement. It's not just Hey, hold fast to your confession. What are you doing? Sometimes it is to be reminded of God's love. 
and to be told, hold fast to what God has promised you. Hold fast to what God has said about you. Sometimes we stir one another by speaking of the benefits and the privileges of being a son or daughter of the king, and sometimes we must call one another to our responsibilities. It's both and. The third and final thing that this stirring and encouragement in order to be effective requires is that we can't just throw words at each other and hope something sticks. That's what social media is all about. And very rarely does any of it stick. But in order for the words that we are to speak as we're stirring up and encouraging or admonishing whatever it is, here's the third thing. You actually have to be close enough to one another to know what needs to be spoken. It doesn't help to have truth spoken to you if it's actually not addressing the lie that you're believing. Sometimes you speak truth like, they're not listening because that's not the actual lie that needs to be combated. Truth speaking requires actually intimacy so that we speak the right truth at the right time in the right way. And guess what? This kind of vulnerability, because that's what it requires, it takes time to build, which requires gathering and being and staying together with the same people week after week and month after month and year after year. Which is why the Hebrew author says, don't neglect the gathering. Isn't it interesting that in the early church it was happening even then? Don't neglect the gathering. The word neglect means to utterly forsake or replace. And so, it's not neglectful to intentionally refrain from gathering for a short period of time for reasons of safety or other reasons. That's not what it's talking about. There is a difference between I cannot gather and I will not gather, especially with those that you've covenanted with. To neglect is to completely abandon your covenant and actually to declare a people that you've covenanted with, to declare a people as invaluable or not valuable and unessential, which is basically to believe I can do my faith without the church. The church doesn't need me and I don't need the church. And that, my friend, is a lie from the enemy. You do need the church, the people of God. And guess what? The church needs you. Well, can't I grow or be encouraged apart from gathering with the church? Yes. You can grow and you can be encouraged, you can be stirred apart from the gathering of the church. But if the church is what the Bible says it is, a body, and you are a body part, 
then your disconnection is not good for yourself or for others. Practically speaking, I mean, let's just get real, you know, physiological. Body parts cannot grow. They cannot heal. They can't even work apart from the body, at least not for long. Furthermore, a body is certainly less without all its parts. <clears throat> Doesn't mean it can't function, but it's not in the fullness of what it's designed to be. So you can do life apart from the people of God, but I would argue you cannot do life to the fullest. God has designed us with a sense of interdependence in mind because we are made in His image, the image of the triune God. So let me blow your mind just for a second. No, it's not heresy. Consider this. According to Genesis 2, this is before the fall. According to Genesis 2, Adam enjoyed wonderful relationship with God, arguably perfect relationship with God. Walk with God, talk with God, knew God, and God knew him. And yet, among all the things that were awesome and good, God declared one thing that was bad or not good. What was that? He was alone. But he was with God. What does that even mean? I'll tell you. God made us for more than himself. What? We're creatures. And the creator created us for more than God. To need more than God. We are made for connection with one another. We are made for community with one another. Proverbs 18.1 warns us, he who isolates himself breaks out against all reason. Consider that. That's how we were designed. And for you to say, I am not going to be a part of that people in that place who gather in God's presence to say that you don't want what God designed you to experience. And that, my friend, is foolish. Last thing. We are gathered to identify together, we gather to edify together, and we gather to testify together. I'm not the only one preaching today. Your very presence here is preaching something. We don't ultimately gather together to experience an emotional response that feeds our consumerism, though I hope you have some kind of emotional response because that is important. We gather together to worship God together and to witness the truth. Testify to the truth. The Apostle Paul prays in Romans 15, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Together with one voice. There is a power in glorifying God with one voice, one large shared voice. If the church becomes the church in its gathering, 
It should not surprise us when that gathering is assaulted by the world. Historically, we know that tyrannical governments have targeted the gathering out of all things. They've worked to break up church gatherings, rightly perceiving their shared testimony as a threat. But what I find even more troubling is how devious the devil is. Some would argue we live in a tyranny right now. I'm willing to listen to that if I still probably disagree with that. But our enemy, the devil, has schemes that are much more subtle. And he can use something as small as a piece of cloth to keep God's people from gathering with one another. It shouldn't surprise us that the gathering is targeted, but I'm not sure the enemy is who we think it is. Right now, our gatherings are threatened more by our own sinful flesh than they are by any sinful governments. And what is threatened is not our rights. Our refusal to gather threatens our testimony. Well, what are we testifying to? I'm glad you ask. Very quickly. Let me tell you the sermon that you're preaching with your presence here. First and foremost, you are testifying to your God-given identity. I am part of the people of God. I am one of the called out ones. I am blood bought by Jesus Christ. Your participation in communion is a powerful sermon about who you know that you are. Second, you are testifying to God's authority. When it really comes down to it, guess what? The Lord has commanded us to gather. He's commanded us to gather I obey God's commands regardless of how I feel, even if I don't fully understand Him, because I'm trusting that what He's saying is true and that I need it even if the moment I don't really like it. But that's submission to authority, right? Third thing we're testifying to is our God-designed deficiency. I didn't know how else to say it. But I declare that I know I can't do life alone. And that I can't even do my life with God alone. That He designed me for more than Him to be and be connected with a people. Last couple, I testify to God's sovereignty. What do I mean by that? Well, I trust, having covenanted with God's people in this place, Whatever is being spoken and shared from people or from the pulpit is what I need. You know, I found an interesting conversation. I had people who were live streaming other services, people who have been members here. Oh, I was listening to other services. I go, why, why would you do that? Not that you couldn't do that during the week, but why on Sunday morning would you do that? And I'm not trying to condemn anybody who's done that. But here was the response oftentimes. Well, there were certain things I needed to hear. Interesting. I know many times we come in and, and we hear a sermon or we hear a particular pastor and we're like, mm, I don't know if I'm, do you have anything to say to me or is this verse going to say something to me? Do we not trust in God's sovereignty? 
as we gather every week and go, God has something for me here. God has something to speak to me here. Maybe that's coming from the pulpit. Maybe it's coming from a person. Maybe it's coming from a song. Who knows? But you go like, because I've covenanted this place, God is present here, and he is designed, ordained for me to be here to hear him. And I'm going to receive whatever it is. That's a very different approach than consumerism. And the last thing that we testify to as we gather here is to our eternal security. You notice the last thing it said in Hebrews? First of all, we're practicing for the eternal gathering. He says, don't neglect it, especially as you see the day drawing near. That's why we gather to go, okay, remember this is not all there is. We are exiles. This is an embassy. We have another better country that we are citizens of. Let's be reminded by that. Let's encourage towards that. Let's stir one another up so we can go out into the world that actually isn't our home and remember who we are. You testify to where your hope truly is. A simple act of gathering is a sermon in itself. A sermon to one another, a sermon to the world, and the sermon is preached before anything is actually preached from this pulpit. Just by your gathering. The commitment to gather as we close is an important part of our covenant. I dare say we ought not be reluctant to do that. We ought to be thankful because there may be a day coming where we cannot gather for any reason at all. In today's age of individualism, I'm seeing that far too many professing Christians see the gathering of the church as an optional activity, and many others are content with their cyber church. But arguably, even those who are faithful to gather, we easily take it for granted, don't we? So I'll close with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer who says simply, don't do that. He calls the church to thanksgiving. He says, it is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us, that the time that still separates us from our utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. And let him thank God on his knees and declare, it is a grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you, Lord, for saving us. We praise you for giving us a new identity as sons and daughters. And we praise you for giving us an additional identity as brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray, Lord, that we will not view this gathering with the consumer eyes that our culture would like us to. That we'll recognize that your presence is real and richly here among us because we are gathered together in your name. <clears throat> we ask, Lord, that you will delight in our worship. 
We ask, Lord, that you will help us to consider how we can stir one another up and encourage one another. But you will, Father, convince us in the most deepest of ways of how essential this gathering is to our faith. Thank you for your grace. Help us to be thankful. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As we continue worship this morning. Unlike you and nothing compares with you. And Father, we praise you for your wonderful plan of gathering a people for your name. You are redeeming sinners from all over the world and welcoming them into your family, that we might be your people and that we might praise and worship you for all of eternity. We praise you for this wonderful plan and we praise you for including us in this wonderful plan. We know that we are completely and utterly undeserving. We are those who have sinned against you. We have rejected you as our king. Yet in your mercy, in your abundance of mercy, you have provided a way for us to be forgiven of our sin, restored to you, welcomed into your family that we might be your people, and you have done so through Jesus Christ. We praise you. You are awesome, and you are good to us. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we will be welcomed into your kingdom where we will be gathered, gathered together with all of your people from all over the world, throughout every generation, once and for all, where we will praise you in your sweet presence, completely free from all sin and sorrow and death and all of the troubles of this world in its present form. We look forward to that day. And as we look forward to that day, we pray that we will not take for granted the joy of gathering together as your people. As we gather together as your people, we get a glimpse, a taste of heaven, of our future with you. We do pray that we would not take that for granted. And Lord, we pray that you will forgive us of our spiritual apathy. We confess that we easily descend into spiritual apathy, spiritual laziness, spiritual indifference. We confess that we are guilty of this. We confess that we need you to deliver us from this, and we humbly ask you to do so. We pray that you would grant us repentance, that we might be a people who love Jesus so much, who are full of affection for Jesus, that we would eagerly pursue you in your word, in prayer, that we would joyfully gather as your people that we would faithfully carry out your work of proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. May this be true of us, we pray. Lord, we do give you thanks for this church family. This church family is a precious gift. Lord, we thank you for the way that this church family comes together to serve you, to serve one another, to seek to build up the church in so many ways, many of which go unnoticed. Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you and we praise you for this good gift. Lord, we pray for our church. We do pray that we will be a people who are growing in our love for Jesus. We pray that we will love Jesus more than anyone or anything else in the world. We pray that Jesus will be more precious to us than anyone or anything else in the world. And we pray that we will grow in our love for one another and our desire to serve one another, to encourage one another, to build one another up. We humbly ask this of you. We don't only ask this for our church family, but we ask this for all of your churches. And Lord, we pray this morning in particular for Communion Church. We thank you for Pastor Jim Fickert. We thank you for his family, his fellow elders, and all the members of Communion Church. We pray that you would encourage them, strengthen them, build them up, 
We pray that you would grant them unity and protect them from attacks of the enemy. We pray that they will be a light in Mount Vernon and beyond. We thank you for this, Lord. And Lord, we want to pray for the leaders of our church and of all your churches. Lord, we know how important it is for your leaders to live above reproach. We know how much harm can come when leaders fail to do so. And so we pray that you would grant it to your leaders to serve you with humility, to walk daily in repentance, and to live lives above reproach. Lord, that we might not cast dispersions on the gospel. We humbly ask this of you. We know that we are all sinners. We need your grace. We need your spirit at work in us. So we humbly ask this of you. Lord, we pray for the preaching and the hearing of the word. We thank you for your word, and we pray that you would bless Pastor Sam as he comes to preach. We pray that he would not preach in his own strength, but would preach in the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would enable us to hear. We pray that you will give us ears to hear. And we pray that your word will find good soil in our hearts, producing, producing much good fruit in us. We ask this of you, and we thank you that you hear our prayers. And we do pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, you open up to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. So if you start in the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the New Testament, and turn to the left, you will get there shortly rather than starting in the middle and going to the right. Thank you for gathering with us this morning. This is what I famously call a second period. You always get the better education, so I'm glad we only have two periods now instead of three. So thank you for being with us. We are more than halfway through our 10-part sermon series called Together. A little bit different of a series than we've done before. Uh, as Mike shared, it's a series that's really organized around our membership covenant. And really, it's a series that is designed to teach us what it means to be part of a local church. Now, having confessed that Jesus is Lord and believe that God has raised Him from the dead, those who have confessed that are, if you will, gathered together as the church. These are the ones who have been called out of the world, who have been rescued from sin, Satan, and death, now, the Bible never describes these people, these Christians, as isolated individuals. Instead, what we see the Bible saying is always describing the people of God as a collective body with many members. The Bible uses terms like household or flock or a vine with branches or even a temple. In other words, when someone is saved... They're not only saved to Jesus, they're actually also saved to one another, to a people. So stated simply, a local church is a group of Christians who confess belief in the gospel and then covenant together to live as the people of God in a particular place. Our series is designed around explaining the parts of that commitment, the parts of that covenant. This morning, our focus is going to be on one of the promises, one of the promises that is found in our covenant, the covenant that we read in our membership class, the covenant that we sign if you become a member, 
and the covenant that we recite at our membership meetings. And this is the one promise in that covenant that we'll focus on this morning. It says, We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together or neglect to pray for ourselves and others. So the question is begged, why do we gather? Why do we gather every week as a church? A popular Christian motto is, don't go to church, be the church. I'm sure you've heard that phrase, maybe you've used that phrase. And while the spirit of that phrase is probably well intended, I think it can lead to a very unhealthy point of view whereby you are pitting being and going or gathering against one another. Many Christians struggle and have struggled actually since the early church with the idea of attending together, gathering together. Statistically prior to COVID, for more than probably two decades, national church attendance has been declining significantly. March 2020 changed that a little bit for the worse. That was when the pandemic forced most churches across the nation to go online. And during this time, researchers began to study and identified three kinds of people during kind of this era of digital church. You had Christians streaming their pre-COVID-19 church online, so their church was streaming their services and they would open it up on their TV or computer at home. Another set of Christians began to stream different churches online, and then a third group of Christians stopped attending church altogether and didn't stream anything. And while there are probably some in the world who maybe started to attend church for the first time, attend, because it was online and they could check it out, the number is pretty insignificant. And so what I've seen is that for all of the blessing that the digital era and the cyber world provides us, and there is a significant amount of blessing, I also believe that there is a subtle trap lurking in this cyber world. And this has been there even before covid You see, there is an increasing temptation of allowing online sermons to replace one's commitment to hearing God's Word preached in person alongside fellow covenant members at a place and a time where their local church gathers. That's the trap. It's become too convenient or too opportune to not gather together. Listening to sermons is generally, like online, it's generally a good thing. I listen to sermons online during the week at different times. But when it takes the place of gathering with God's people to hear God's word in person from the appointed shepherds of your soul, I think much of what God intended for our growth as followers of Jesus may be lost. And while a virtual church or a podcast pastor is a practical reality, 
I think we must all consider whether it is a theological one. Now, in other words, if we understand the church to be what the Bible says it is, to be what we have been teaching the Bible says it is, then it is possible that a virtual church is something akin to wet fire. Let that land for a second. What? Right. By nature, it doesn't work. By nature of what it is, that can't happen. If the church is what it is, then virtual church eh, may not actually even be a possibility. So why is it important to gather in real life? What is lost if we don't? Or what is gained if we do? Fantastic questions. This morning, we're going to find a couple of the answers. There's other places we can look in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. So if you'd read with me in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, it says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Very important passage in Scripture. I'm going to center my time on three kind of main reasons. They aren't the only reasons, but three main kind of points, if you will, about why we gather. I think the first and perhaps most important reason we gather is to identify together to identify together. Now, if you know anything about Hebrews, the the book of Hebrews is a book of theology, really explicit theology, that focuses on Jesus in particular and how he is the greater priest and greater sacrifice representing the new and greater covenant, one that is greater or better than the old. Chapter 10, to this end, begins by describing the law of God, the Mosaic law, as a shadow of the good things to come. So if you want to read the book of Hebrews, it's an excellent book to help you understand the connection between the Old and the New Testament, of how everything pointed forward to fulfillment in Christ. And so this is why, as he's going through chapter 10, the author uh, starts by comparing the temporary sacrifices that took place in the temple by Israel. And they particularly took place on what was called the Day of Atonement, an annual day of sacrifice to cover the sins of the people of God. And what it says, it says there were these temporary sacrifices and they were done once a year, but done perpetually for years and generations. And then that all pointed to the one atoning sacrifice, the final and complete 
offering that Jesus made on the cross. Connected with this act of worship, this sacrificial worship at the temple, was the forgiveness of sins. This is why they were doing this atoning sacrifice. It was to cover their sins in the blood. Now, we're told in Hebrews 10 here at the beginning that through the blood of Jesus now, we enter into the presence of God in this new and living way, fully forgiven. As the author speaks about drawing near to God with this like full assurance and without any fear, it's important to note the repetition of the pronouns, particularly the plural pronouns that he used in doing this. He uses words like we and us and our in these six or seven verses continually. Why would he do that? Because the experience of worship, the experience even involved in the atonement, the experience of relating to God was not just an individual experience. It was a collective experience. It was a shared experience. It was a communal experience. The tabernacle or what became the temple, this was central to the Hebrews' worship of experience. And they didn't just go by themselves. The Jew identified themselves as a worshiper of the one true God, but also as part of a worshiping people. Part of their identity, not just stuff they did, part of their identity was rooted in assembling to be and identify as the people of God in a particular place where we knew or they knew His presence was uniquely there. Back in Exodus times and later in the, or early in the Old Testament, like you saw the glory of God centered on the temple. You knew where God was present, and that was at the center of their camp, the center of their life, the center of their city. As we go to the New Testament, we see we get this word church. And that's a Greek word, Ecclesia. And this word, the literal translation of this word is really the called out assembly. Or the called out gathering, if you will. The word church, as you dig into like where it's really coming from, you start to see it actually refers to the house of the Lord and the modern church kind of word or word for church is a descendant of this old English word that really talked about the body of Christian believers, the whole body of them, or the place where they gathered together. So all that to say that the word itself, when we speak about the church, the word itself speaks and points and describes an assembly, a gathering. And so we gather in many ways to be who we are. We gather to be a gathering. We assemble to be an assembly. Now, the assembly of God's people, the gathering of God's people as distinguished from the world that's scattered everywhere, right? we gather together. This is part of the people of God's identity since the very beginning, before there was even a temple. As far back as the Garden of Eden, 
you have this multifaceted idea of God being present together with His people in a particular place. The Garden of Eden isn't the whole earth. It's a garden on the earth. And that is where God uniquely dwelled with His people. Now, this idea of God being present with His people in a place, right? The places have changed over the years. You see this in the Old Testament. But even though they have changed, there's always been a kind of geography attached to the theology. A place of some kind. God planted His people in a garden. God led His people out of Egypt and assembled them at the base of a mountain where He made a covenant with them and they received the law. God organized His people into tribes and those tribes were assembled around a tabernacle. What we see is that God has always been present together with His people in a particular place and that is what's going to happen at the close of the age. If you read the Revelation at the end, Revelation chapter 21, notice what you see. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, that's a place, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, presumably in this city. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. Right? So, the presence of God in a place with His people. This is throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. So arguably, the church, the assembly, becomes a church in its gathering. Okay? So if we truly are the people of God, the called out assembly, then we have to assemble. Not like the Avengers, but like gather together regularly and like in real life. The people of God assemble in order to make that which is invisible, visible. Not only here, uh, we prayed for communion church this morning. We believe that God is present in that place with His people as well. So Restoration Road isn't the only place where God's people are gathered, but it is for us the place. We display our shared citizenship in this spiritual kingdom through a tangible but temporary geography. If, as the Bible teaches, which it does in 2 Corinthians 5, Christians are ambassadors, and as Peter teaches us, who are exiles in a foreign land. So we're ambassadors exiled in a foreign land then the church gathering is an embassy in a foreign land. 
So as Jonathan Lehman, I think, wisely argues, churches gather because embassies of heaven must be visible, must be audible, must be touchable. Humans are physical creatures, he says. Bodies matter, space matters, physical togetherness matters. Churches need a a place, if you will, in which to gather so that they actually might become who they are. And sometimes, yes, that's a home. And sometimes that's a 19th century building we pray never falls down. Right? But all that to say, church is not just some activity. It is an expression of identity. Now, can't I identify with the church apart from the gathering? But isn't it true that Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there he is in their presence? Yes, Jesus did say that. He said that in Matthew chapter 18. He said that he was among his disciples in a very present and and powerful way when two or three were gathered in his name. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians use this verse wrongly. Some Christians wrongly use this verse to sanctify every small group, every Bible study, every dinner party, every golf group they have. To say like, well... As long as we say, Jesus, give me luck when I hit this golf ball. He's here with us. We'll do church on the links. No, sorry. If you read Matthew 18, what you'll read in context is Jesus is actually talking about the assembly. He's talking about the church. Specifically, not to put water on your fire, He is talking about the authority of the church to discipline. He's talking about the unity of the church in its decisions. He's talking about the purity of the church relative to sin in the camp. It's a verse about discipline that we use in not the best way. Now, It's important to understand that if you step back and go, what is the story of redemption about? Among other things, it is about the return of God's rule. So the return of God's rule, the return, if you will, of his authority. That's why the return of the king, right? He's a king on his throne. Now, the church is to be the manifestation of that authority on earth. Christ's lordship. Like, what makes this place special? What makes this space special? Christ's lordship is what makes it special. And and where we gather in a unique way, but not an exclusive way, in a unique way, Christ's, God's manifold wisdom is displayed through our shared worship in his presence. And what I mean by that is that ultimately, yes, Jesus is everywhere. But he is here in our gathering in a unique and precious way that he is not anywhere else. In the gathering of the church. 
I sometimes wonder if we functionally come with such a consumeristic mindset or sometimes even not expecting it. Like, can you imagine going to actually be with Jesus, expecting Jesus to be there, expecting Jesus to say something there? Do you know the Israelite, when they approached the temple, they had the curtain that separated them from God's presence? They knew where God was? Do you think they approached that like, <laughs> like maybe we'll show up on, like, whatever. They knew what they were doing. They knew they were going into the presence of God. They knew they were going to worship. They were expecting God to say something, to do something, to move and stir in them. The gathering of the church is just much more than just an event on a calendar where it ought to be. It is a place where first and foremost we identify as the people of God. But when we're here, we do a few other things. We not only gather to identify together, we gather to edify together, which is my English teacher alliteration coming out. You're welcome. Easy to remember. Love it. Edify. The word edification, that might not be a word you use very often. Edify is just the verb form of edification. And edification carries the meaning of building up. It's a process of building up. The word used in the New Testament, oikidome, I think. I don't know, I say it fast and move on. It translates literally the building of a house. Building up of a house. According to one expository dictionary, the word edification indicates this idea of spiritual growth and development of character in believers. Comes through teaching or by example. It's this idea of spiritual progress that's the result of patient labor. So it's not an instant, it's over time. Paul speaks of the gathering in the Corinthian church often. He speaks about spiritual gifts. He talks about singing. He talks about speaking and preaching. He says all these things were for the purpose and are for the purpose for edifying the church, for building up the church, for us growing and becoming, if you will, who God designed us to be. We learned last week that the church is built up in this way as not just pastors fulfill their roles, but members fulfill their responsibilities as they serve one another and speak the truth to one another and love one another. Now the writer of Hebrews here connects this edification process, this building up process to the gathering, which is where he says in verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And then he adds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. We expect to hear that in the 21st century, but what about the first century? Seems like it was a problem back then. But encouraging one another, he says, all the more as the day draws near. So, we are to be intentional in our gathering. We are to consider how I might stir up, how I might encourage someone else. Now, this call to stir up and to encourage one another, it's predicated on a couple assumptions. The first assumption is predicated on the idea of we have to be together. 
The fulfillment of stirring up, of encouraging, requires us to actually be in one another's presence. So edification is a form of another T-I-O-N word, sanctification. And that's just a big word to describe our progression in the Christian faith. When you are saved by Jesus, you are positionally perfect, spiritually glorious, but not in the flesh yet. And so sanctification is the progress of looking more and more like Jesus, of becoming in practice what you already are in position. Okay, now this sanctification process includes edification. Now some edification, some building up is very individual, right? I pray by myself. I may study the Bible sometimes by myself. I may do acts of service just on my own, by myself. Evangelize, I get it. But there's a lot of edification that actually is communal. And there's some edification that's very active, like stirring up and encouraging. We'll talk about what that means in a second. But let me just give you a little insight into the edification that's actually passive. And by that I mean this. Simply... You being present. Being present together with your brothers and sisters is one of my greatest encouragements. And I know it's others. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. Just your presence together in this place is hugely encouraging You imagine family get-togethers and 90% of the family doesn't show up. The only times I had to preach to that camera to an empty room, well, Joel was there, but like a couple guys were there, but really I was preaching to a camera. You know how empty it felt? Like you try to get excited, it's like, it's just not the same. And I know it's not the same looking at me on a TV or someone else on a TV. You can do it, but it's like, "Mm, there's there's, it's just not because... God designed us to be together. Be able to touch and see and hear in a way that doesn't translate through Zoom. And so even stirring it, like it, it kind of depends on us actually being with each other. But the second thing that kind of means, okay, this is implied, the fulfillment of these commands to stir up and to encourage is dependent upon something else, and that is to actually say something to one another actually talk to each other. It's interesting. The idea or the word for stir up here, it carries a, an interesting meaning. It's a meaning that actually talks about provoking or even irritating one another to love and good works. That's interesting. I am going there to irritate, right? But it we could probably misunderstood. I don't fully understand what that means, but that's like what the word means, how it's used most frequently. So, if nothing else, it's strong language that denotes a very active and passionate and intentional sharpening of one another. Maybe it irritates a little bit, but maybe that's irritation like swords clanging, sparks that happens when iron hits iron. 
But it's like, well, how would we, how would we do that here? You can do that in conversations. But I think one way to think about maybe how this might, you might stir up one another or encourage one another is the idea that like we come together and we hear the same sermon. We hear the same truth being shared. And one way to accomplish this stirring up, this encouraging, is to actually challenge one another to apply the truth that you know that we all heard. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Let's be encouraged by that. How are you going to live that out? Now, that sounds like a lot of doing, but as a general rule, here's what I want to say. Your silence, your refusal to stir up or encourage, or whatever it looks like, and look a couple different ways, your silence robs someone of sanctification. It robs them of the opportunity to hear the truth, whatever that truth might need to be. Don't rob someone of sanctification by refusing to speak what needs to be spoken. And at times, what needs to be spoken is a loving challenge. Like, hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to the truth. Don't listen to the lies. But other times, we need to be encouraged in other ways. Not just to hold fast to the truth of a confession, not just to do what is right, though that is important. I think sometimes, instead of a strong admonishment, we need a strong encouragement to be reminded of God's love. To be reminded of some of the truth of the gospel. To not hold fast to the confession, but hold fast to the promises of God. Be encouraged, you who are downtrodden, you who are struggling. So it, it, it's multifaceted, but it all requires actually opening your mouth and saying something to one another. And we gather together in a unique context to do that. We're in the context of remembering the truth and speaking the truth and singing the truth and hearing the truth, and we need it. And the third kind of requirement or implied thing that our stirring and our encouragement is dependent upon is an interesting one to consider. Because some people think it's really effective just to throw truth at each other. Hope something sticks. That's what the whole social media world is, is like, you know, based on. To throw it out. And most stuff doesn't stick. Most of it's stinky, but it doesn't stick right? In order for our stirring up, in order for our encouragement to actually be affected, you have to actually know the person that you're speaking to. What do I mean by that? Truth requires intimacy so that you actually speak the right truth at the right time and in the right way. And guess what? This means vulnerability. And vulnerability doesn't happen overnight. And so what that requires or implies about our gathering is that in order to establish vulnerability, we are going to have to be with one another and stay with one another and gather with one another week after week and month 
after month and year after year so that we truly know one another because speaking the truth to somebody isn't going to actually have the effect you intend unless you actually are speaking the truth to combat the lie that they're believing. And you'll never know the lie that they're believing until you know the person themselves. You can speak truth, and sometimes you'll get lucky and speak the truth that needs to be heard. But vulnerability and intimacy allows you to actually know a person well enough to speak what actually needs to be said. That is why we gather. And that is why the Hebrew writer says, don't neglect this. Don't neglect this. Now, the word for neglect means to utterly forsake or replace. Few of us would be like, I have never utterly or forsaken or replaced it. Mm. I find a lot of brothers and sisters replacing the gathering with much more exciting things in their view, but perhaps much less essential. To neglect, though, is not to intentionally refrain from gathering for a short period for reasons of safety or even ability. That's not what we're talking about. That's not neglect. There is a difference between cannot and will not, especially when talking about gathering with those you've covenanted with. To neglect is to completely abandon. And I want you to think about that. If the church is what the Bible says it is, and the gathering is the assembly of people, and you say, I don't need church. Here's what you're actually confessing. You're not just abandoning an event. You're declaring a people as not valuable. You're declaring a people as unessential, which is to believe the lie that I do not need the church and the church doesn't need me, which is false. You ask, well, can't I grow apart from the church gathering? Can't I progress? Yeah. But if the church is what the Bible describes, a body, and you are a body part, your disconnection from the body is not good for yourself or for others in the long term. I mean, practically speaking, physiologically speaking, a part of the body cannot grow, cannot heal when it's weak, cannot even function, at least not for long, apart from the body. I mean, you can do life but you cannot do life to its fullest without that which God gave for your life. See, God designed us. And this is the interesting part. He designed us for interdependence in the same sense that like, we are made in the image of God, the triune God. And what I mean, consider this. Maybe something you never thought about. If you go back to Genesis 2, which is before the fall, Genesis 1 and 2, right? You have the creation of the world and the creation of man, and everything is good and wonderful. And there's only one thing that God says before the fall that's not good. 
Think about this. Adam had relationship with God. The fullness of relationship with God. He walked with God. He talked with God. He spent time with God. And what does God say? It's not good for man to be alone. But he has God. Isn't it enough for the man to have the fullness of relationship just with God? He doesn't need anybody else. Not according to God. In other words, God, dare I say, made us for more than himself. God made us to need connection with one another. He made us to need community with one another. Which is why the Proverbs warn us to isolate yourself. is foolish that it breaks out against all sound judgment. That's how he made us. And so we come together to edify and to function and to be who God has called us to be that we might become who God has made us to become. Last part. The third and final reason. Not only do we identify together or edify together, but we testify together. We don't ultimately come together just to have an emotional response. I do think emotional responses are good and right but when it lends towards consumerism and you evaluate the goodness of something because you felt tickles or tingles, that's a problem. We gather largely to give worship to God. We gather together to witness to the truth of God. The Apostle Paul prays in Romans chapter 15 May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is power in glorifying God with one voice. There's power in singing together and power in hearing the Word of God together if the church becomes the church in its gathering, it shouldn't surprise us when the gathering becomes a thing that is attacked by all kinds of enemies. Historically, we know, right, tyrannical governments, they target the gatherings of church. Even now in China and other parts of the world, they're targeting the gatherings of churches. Why? Well, clearly the gathering, more than anything else, certainly more than individual Christians, are a threat. But I would argue there is a greater threat. It's easy to point at a tyrannical government or a government and call it tyrannical and go, oh, look what they're doing to our gathering, our enemy the devil has schemes that are much more subtle. And what I've seen over the last year is how he can use something as small as a piece of cloth to keep people from gathering together. I would argue that right now our gatherings are threatened more by our sinful flesh than they are by sinful governments. Not to suggest that simple governments aren't having their way. 
but more by our sinful flesh. And what is threatened mostly, guess what, is not our rights. What is threatened mostly is our testimony. Because when you come here, when you gather here, I want you to understand you're preaching a sermon. You're testifying to some important truths. And I'll quickly lay them out. The first thing you're testifying to is your God-given identity. That you are distinguished, if you will, from the world. That you are gathering together with brothers and sisters, declaring their belief in Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, that I am a son and a daughter of the King, that I am a sinner saved by grace. You are making that confession just by being here. Certainly there are non-believers among us, but the church, the followers of Jesus are making a confession, this is my true identity, my most important identity, that I will gather in public as long as I can, and I will gather in secret if I must. The second thing we're testifying to is God's authority. Why do we gather? Because God said so. Not the first thing we pull out, but it's something to say. Because how many commands are there in Scripture that we go, mm, I don't know how I feel about that. God's not asking. And so by pushing through the difficulty, pushing through the discomfort, pushing through the counter-cultural, counterintuitive, whatever it is, and going, I'm going to gather, you're saying, because God said so. And my obedience isn't predicated on what I feel or even what I understand, but on what God has said. And I'm going to believe that what He said is true. And then if I don't even like it, that I need it. Third thing we testify to do is God's design deficiency. Oh, that's a doozy. Didn't know how best to say that. But God has created us a certain way. And by that I mean... I'm declaring by my present here that I cannot do life alone. I cannot actually just do life with God. That He has designed me to need more than Him. He has designed me to be a part of a community, the people of God. Last couple, we also testify to God's sovereignty. And what do I mean by that? I realize it's easy to go and find a sermon online that you would rather listen to. I've had many conversations over the last year with different people. We listen to sermons during the week, many people do. But some people, even members of this church, would gather and instead of connecting as best we could, realizing that technology doesn't always work, with our church and what's being preached here, they would seek out some other. Well, why would you do that? Just curious. Like, what's the thought behind this? Like, there were some things I needed to hear. And our church wasn't giving the truth that I wanted. Wow. You realize that by gathering here week in and week out, in many ways you're confessing your trust in God's sovereignty that whoever is preaching and whatever is preached is what God thinks you need to hear. I'm not suggesting you don't listen to any other sermons or even visit other churches on occasion. But there's a trust and sovereignty. Trust and sovereignty of who God has gathered here. Trust and sovereignty of what is being preached here. Trust and sovereignty of like what God is doing in this particular place that you've covenanted with. 
And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, you confess to your eternal security. Last part of Hebrews says, stir up and encourage all the more as you see the day coming near. This is the place, unlike any other place, where we gather and we proclaim truth. And one of those truths is the reality that there's a better country. That our identity is that of citizens of heaven, not citizens of earth. And we do that more and more as the world gets more and more chaotic around us. We gather to be reminded of that. We gather as we suffer to be reminded of that. We gather as people die and reminded of that. This life is not all there is. And there is a greater life, a second life yet to come. The simple act of gathering is a sermon myself, it's a sermon to one another, and it's a sermon to the world, guess what? Even before any sermon is actually preached from this pulpit. The very act of gathering is the first sermon that's preached. Well, as we close, I want to just recognize that the commitment to gather is such an important part, we believe, of the Christian life. We've included it in our covenant. In today's age of individualism, I think far too many professing Christians see the gathering of church as something optional, and many others are content with cyber church, internet church, or no church at all. But even for those who are faithful to gather, I think the weekly blessing of assembling together is actually often taken for granted. We just start going through the motions until it gets taken away from us, and then it becomes, or perhaps reminded of how special it was. So I'd like to close with the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who warns us not to be reluctant but to be thankful. He wrote this, It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God, that any day may be taken from us, and that the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare, it is a grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in a community with Christian brethren. Powerful words from a man who was put in prison to be all alone for being a Christian. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your great love. We not only thank you, Lord, for saving us, knowing that we were sinners, knowing that, Lord, we are rebellious and broken, knowing everything we'd ever do or say or think, you died for us, Jesus. And you saved us to yourself, but you did more than that. You saved us to your people. Not only did you make us sons and daughters, Lord, you made us brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that, Lord, if nothing else, we will just value the gathering of this family more. We'll see it for what it is, something mysterious, something spiritual, 
and yet something tangible. Let us never take it for granted, Lord, for the day we know may come when it may be illegal to gather, when it will be more than discomfort that we have to endure in order to gather. Lord, we ask that you will bless our church and other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches like ours. Thank you for your grace to us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.